0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we celebrate our one year, sort of, anniversary, in that this is episode number 50, and we have decided that every 50 episodes we will celebrate one year. Basically, just to keep things a little bit easier from a bookkeeping perspective and just to kind of have a, an easier milestone to keep track of. So every 50 episodes, we will celebrate that past year's worth of podcasts. And this being our first one, I wanted to do something a little unique. So today we are going to rank the top 10 entries in our Pantheon of Classic Gaming. So for anybody who may not know, one of the things that we do with every single one of these episodes is we go through a game, we talk about their historical perspective, where it sits in overall history, and then we do a pseudo-review kind of section where we talk about graphics, sound, music, narrative, and story, if the game has one, playability and controls, and the overall feel as far as what the game feels like to play today versus when it may have been released however many years ago. We do all of that to reach a verdict and assign each game to one of several categories, with the very top one being the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. So if a game reaches the Pantheon, it is a certifiable classic, you should go out and play that today. And normally, most of these episodes, I go through a very traditional introductory kind of segment that I explain all of this stuff to any of our newer listeners. Today, since it is an anniversary episode... And because we are deviating from the classic formula, we're going to do things just a little bit differently. So I am going to go through every single one of our Pantheon entries, give a little bit of stats, some metrics around the first year of the podcast, and then we are going to go and rank the top 10 in the Pantheon. And I do want to just mention one thing real quick. This is the top 10 as of today when I am recording this episode as I'm sure many people go through the same kind of thing. Your opinions change over time. And this is my opinion after looking back over the last year's worth of podcast episodes, looking at all of our entries and then thinking back to how I felt when I played each of those games and then ranking the top 10. We do have over 10 entries in the Pantheon. And the fact is, if a game is in the Pantheon, you already know it's a great experience. So this is like ranking the top all-stars on a baseball team where this is like ranking the 1992 NBA dream team from, from the United States that ended up winning the gold medal. It's like, how do you rank people or things that are absolutely all-stars to begin with. Well, I mean, certainly you can, and that's what we're going to do today, but that in no way diminishes all of the other games that are in our pantheon. They are all great experiences, but I thought it'd be fun to do a little bit of a top 10 list kind of thing because I actually like top 10 lists. That's one of my guilty pleasures whenever I'm looking for something to do on YouTube. A lot of times I'll go to top 10, blah, 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 and usually it's something about video games. Anyway, we are going to get started. So before we get into the top 10 list, I do want to run off the list of what our current Pantheon of Classic Gaming looks like. So for anybody who would like to play along and see how your opinions either align or differ from mine, these are the games that are in our Pantheon of Classic Gaming as of year one of the podcast. And just from a numerical perspective... We have talked about 53 different games over the last 49 episodes, because there were a couple of episodes that we did some multiple games and included multiple games in. So this is the list of Pantheon entries. There are 20, 20 games out of those 53 games made it into the Pantheon of classic gaming, which basically means we've been picking a lot of good games to go through over this first year. And I'm excited about that. It was a really fun experience. So In chronological order, meaning chronological order as far as when the podcast episodes came out, our current pantheon of classic gaming is Lemmings, Neo Turf Masters, Out of This World, Donkey Kong Country, Chrono Trigger, Doom, Quake, Daytona USA, Streets of Rage 2, Super Mario Land 2, Contra, Star Fox. Who Shot Johnny Rock, which I know is probably a surprise to many of you, The Legend of Zelda, The Dig, Super Mario Kart, The Operative No One Lives Forever, Toonstruck, Sonic the Hedgehog, and Metal Gear Solid. So those 20 games, those are the ones that we are going to be ranking and picking the top 10 out of. And I fully anticipate doing something similar like this every time we hit one of those 50 episode milestones. And the Pantheon is just going to continue to grow, which means the competition gets fiercer every single year. So I am excited about that. I hope you guys are excited for a little bit of a change of pace and just having some fun with this episode because it's absolutely not going to be one of the more serious or educational episodes. This is really all about our own nostalgia for this podcast over the last year. Before we get to our top 10, though, I do want to talk about how you can reach me if you feel so inclined. I have a Twitter account with the handle at Classic Gaming T. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. And I also have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the podcast community. And it's also a place where we have a ton of fun Every single day, we have a lot of great discussions every weekend. We do a different weekend gaming challenge. There is an official leaderboard and there will be prizes. We're currently in our season zero, so to speak, which basically means this is the start of these challenges. Season zero runs through October 1st. So if anybody feels so inclined to get engaged in that activity, come out to discord, join in. It's definitely a good time. And I do want to mention there was a shakeup to the leaderboard this past weekend, because not only did we have our weekend gaming challenge, but we also identified our new game of the month for September. That is pilot wings. And that came with its own challenge. So at the end of the weekend, our leaderboard has been shaken up a bit. At the very top is Iso with 15 total points. He got four different points based on the weekend gaming challenge, and he did complete the Pilot Wings monthly challenge all the way at the beginning of the month. Absolutely crazy. That was worth 10 points. So he is currently in the lead with 15. Then we have Bookie Gnu, who has six total points. He got three points over the weekend as well. This past weekend we had a little bit of a variety challenge it was all about cats and dogs and Bookie went out there he did 3 of the I'll say individual point challenges ISO focused on Final Fantasy 7 a little bit of a longer challenge but worth 3 points so that's what ultimately gave him a bit of a lead as well as the 10 point monthly challenge anyway In third place is Rich Senewald with four total points. He got two points over this past weekend. I Am The Dizzle is in fourth place. He didn't get any points this weekend because he was knee-deep in Starfield Early Access, which apparently sounds like a really good time. Blue Fates is in fifth place. And then in sixth place is Left-Handed Guitarist. And technically, Blue Fates and Left-Handed Guitarist are tied with one point apiece. Blue Fates didn't get a chance to get any points this past weekend. Left-Handed Guitarist did so that is our leaderboard right now once again if you want to join in on the fun make sure you join us out on discord it is a ton of fun I should also mention that we do have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classicgamingtoday. So if anybody would like to get a little bit of additional content, we do a new episode, Patreon exclusive, every other week. We have some blog posts that are Patreon exclusive as well. So it's a lot of fun out there as well. If you want to have a little bit of extra content for Classic Gaming Today, that is the place to do it. And I do want to also shout out our Pantheon members of the Patreon. They are iso rich centerwald and david morton thank you for your contributions and thank you all for listening to the show i hope you all enjoy listening to it as much as i enjoy creating it so without further ado we are going to move into the top 10 entries in the pantheon of classic gaming and we are of course going to start with our number 10 entry (laughs) What can I say about The Legend of Zelda? What an absolute behemoth classic of a game. I remember when I was a kid playing The Legend of Zelda, and I remember going through, and I never played the second quest when I was younger. I only focused on the first quest, and even the first quest was challenging. But I remember keenly one specific situation that happened, which is kind of comical now because kids do weird things but i was a kid i was playing the game and i got up to the dungeon in zelda where the map looks like a face with like almost like a skull with eyes and a nose and things like that and i actually called the nintendo game counselor hotline which was 1206-885-7529 standard dialing charges apply i guess but i didn't have to worry about that my parents paid for that one but regardless i used to call up the game counselor line a pretty good amount and i called them one time not to ask for a hint but to just call them and tell them hey did you know that this dungeon in the legend of zelda looks like a skull looks like a face and the guy on the other end of the line i mean he's a total pro he basically tur- said yeah oh that's that's great kid you, you found something out now of course they have strategy guides for all this stuff and they're probably like what the heck is this kid talking about but it was something super fun i just loved the legend of zelda And I loved playing The Legend of Zelda. It was one of those experiences that was totally unique and different than anything else I had played at the time. And even replaying it for this podcast, it's still a really good game. I mean, the whole thing is designed really well. There are some frustrations, especially with the second quest, which I did not try. Like I said, I didn't really play the second quest at all when I was younger, though I did I think I did at one point create a saved game with uh, that basically started right at the second quest by entering, I believe, Link as the character name. I think that's the right name to start the second quest. It's been a little bit since we've talked about Zelda, so my memory's just a teeny bit fuzzy. But I did try that out. I probably played around a little bit, but I never tackled it in earnest. I was solely a first quest kind of guy back when I was a kid. Playing the second quest for this podcast, ooh, it's a little brutal. Not so much just the reorganization of the map and the different dungeons, the way the layouts are, but just the fact that some of the enemy types and enemy configurations are just really challenging. And in some cases, borderline a little unfair-ish to me, at least. I know a ton of people love the second quest. I'm not the biggest fan of second quest in Legend of Zelda, but regardless of that, The Legend of Zelda as a total package is an amazing experience. And the fact that there was this whole hidden second quest after you already beat this gargantuan for the time game and you have an entire other quest to go through that is as big as the original just shows the kind of ingenuity that went into creating that game. The Legend of Zelda is absolutely a top game of all time. It's telling though, that the rest of our Pantheon is so good because Zelda comes in at number 10 in our current Pantheon of Classic Gaming. How many games could actually be better than The Legend of Zelda? Well, we are about to find out as we move on to our ninth entry in our Pantheon of Classic Gaming. This is number nine. (laughs) you <laughs> Up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, start. Or if you're playing with two players, as I often did, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, select, start. The Konami code Contra. Contra is one of those games that, as a kid, I would just play over and over and over again. And I would just, I would literally just try to get as good as I could at the game. And even if I didn't beat the game, I just enjoyed playing it. I remember sitting down putting in the Konami code because there was no way I was going to beat it at the time without using 30 lives. I could not beat the game on just the standard amount of lives that you get and the few number of continues that you had available to you. But I would sit down, I would put in the Konami code, I would grab my ultimate NES joystick controller thingy with the kind of arcade joystick and A, B buttons on the left and right side and an, and a, uh, toggle or a dial that would allow you to put on turbo for each of the buttons. I returned the turbo up on the shoot button and I would go to town and it was just such an amazing, fun experience. It didn't matter if I beat the game or not. It was just downright fun to play and it was challenging, but it was a good kind of challenging and it was something that you could actually learn. When I sat down to play the game for this podcast I was determined to beat the game as it was originally designed. And I know you could argue, well, hey, the Konami code is part of the game to begin with. So it is originally designed with the Konami code. You could use it. But I wanted to try to challenge myself to beat the game with using only the default number of lives and continues. And over a period of around eight hours, I trained up, I trained up, I tried to get pretty good. I I determined or got my muscle memory back from when I was a kid and I did eventually beat the game as it was defined in its default state. And I felt so good when I beat the game. It was just so much fun. It was even fun today. And it's one of those games. Contra is one of those games that has literally not aged. You can sit down and play it and it feels modern almost. It's not like the controls are deprecated. It's not like the graphics look bad. The graphics look like any other retro inspired title that might be a modern game today. That's how good it is. It just is very appealing to play. It's very fun to play. It is a challenge. And I will admit that if you're not ready to put in some time to learning the game, learning where the enemies spawn, learning where the power-ups are, because the power-ups are a big deal in Contra, Especially the spread gun, which is my personal favorite. But if you don't take the time to learn all of that, you're probably going to have a little bit of a difficult time. And like I said before, you can still play the game and have fun without having to beat the game. And you could sit down, let's say you make it to level 4 or level 5. Big deal, that's still awesome and it's still fun. You could also play it with save states if you want to emulate and just try to make the game a little bit easier on yourself. Give yourself some of the creature comforts that we may enjoy today that may not have been part of the original NES kinds of releases that came out years ago, 30-plus years ago. That's totally fine, too. I mean, it's one of those things where you can basically make the game what you want it to be. Regardless of how you make it, the game is just simply fun, and it deserves its spot in the Pantheon, and it absolutely deserves its spot in our Top 10 list. But there are eight other games that at least today I'm thinking are a little bit better than Contra. So we're going to go on to our eighth entry in the list right now. Lemmings was the first game that I wanted to play when I decided I was going to start this podcast. And there are a few reasons behind that. Number one, I have a significant amount of nostalgia for Lemmings because I did play it quite a bit when I was younger. I never actually sat down to try to beat the game, though. I kind of played it off and on. I almost used it as sort of a pastime or hobby kind of thing where I never even went beyond the very easiest difficulty when I was younger. I played those first 30 stages. I thought I was awesome. I just kind of kept doing it and doing it and trying to get my time a little bit better, but I never tried to go to the harder difficulty levels. So I actually missed a huge chunk of the game. I want to say I probably played, I think the difficulty levels, if I remember correctly, had 30 stages per difficulty level and there were four difficulty levels. So that works out to 120 total stages. So I literally played maybe like a fourth of the game when I was younger. And I still loved it. I also, when I was younger, played Christmas lemmings or holiday lemmings. And I thought, wow, that's a blast too. So I never went had gone back to really play the game in earnest, but I did have a lot of nostalgia for the title. Number two, as far as when we were starting this podcast, why I wanted to play it, is at the time I was feeling a desire to play some sort of puzzle game experience. And I am not a huge puzzle gamer. I love adventure games. I play a ton of adventure games, which have kind of those analytical or thought provoking kinds of puzzles built in, but I don't usually sit down to play a puzzle game. And at the time I kind of wanted to, and I wanted to play something that I thought would be really good. And I had some pull towards or some nostalgia for and lemmings fit the bill. Lemmings is all about these little creatures that you have to navigate from where they enter the level all the way to an exit, avoiding obstacles, traps, and any number of potential pitfalls along the way. And when you figure out a level, when you look at the entirety of a level and you figure out the path for your Lemmings to travel through to actually survive, You feel like a genius. I don't care if it's an easy level or a hard level. It just feels so good. And the Lemmings difficulty curve, one of the reasons I loved the game is because there was such a smooth ramp up for difficulty across the entire game that you felt like you were getting smarter as you played the game. And it was such a great feeling. Beyond the sense of accomplishment that you get by simply playing the game and winning the game or beating a puzzle. It just felt really good to get better skilled as you played the game so that by the time you got to the end, you had a much larger tool set that you could rely upon, not necessarily in terms of game mechanics, just in terms of your overall intellectual framework for the game. And I think that is the mark of an excellent, well-designed puzzle experience. So for that reason, Lemmings does make it to our eighth entry in our top 10 countdown of our Pantheon. Moving on to number seven, let's see what that one is. I'm going to venture a guess and say that sonic the hedgehog pretty much needs no introduction the little blue mascot that propelled sega to actually overtake nintendo in the console market sonic the hedgehog was a revolutionary release the sense of speed the number of colors just the overall visual flair That the title had, in addition to the mechanics and the smoothness of gameplay, coupled with that just breakneck speed, made an awesome experience that really had not been experienced on consoles before. Maybe not even on computers before. I know that Sega claimed that it was the fastest platform game in the world and that Sonic is the fastest platforming character. I have no reason to dispute that claim. Sonic was certainly fast. And Sonic the Hedgehog is definitely a masterclass in designing a platforming kind of experience. Sonic is one of those games that I never really played when I was younger. I'm talking about the very first Sonic. I played a ton of Sonic the Hedgehog 2. I just did not play all that much of the original because around the time that Sonic came out, I was a Nintendo guy. And my whole household was Nintendo. We had... We had gotten the NES, we got the Game Boy, we were getting the Super Nintendo. We were just fully on the Nintendo bandwagon. And when Sega came around and released the Genesis, I certainly took notice and I knew that friends had the Sega Genesis and I was certainly enamored with some of their titles and it looked like a great system, but we were Nintendo, so I didn't really care. I was Team Mario all the way. So I never really played the original Sonic the Hedgehog. I did play Sonic the Hedgehog 2 when I got my Sega Genesis, I guess a couple years later when I decided to diversify beyond just being a Nintendo fanboy and becoming more of a video game aficionado, so to speak. So the original Sonic the Hedgehog, I never really played as a kid. When I sat down to play it for this podcast, it blew me away. Literally, I had no idea that the original Sonic the Hedgehog was as good as it was I thought that because Sonic the Hedgehog 2 was so much, generally speaking, more revered than the original, that Sonic was a good experiment, but wasn't necessarily as quality or as feature rich as what its successor would be. But I stand corrected. Sonic the Hedgehog, the original, is an amazing experience, and I had so much fun playing the game. I did play it differently than when I played those games when I was a child. Because when I was younger, I always thought that the only way to play Sonic, because speed was central to the experience... I thought you had to speed through the game. So I would run all over the place as fast as I could. I would often hit enemies. I would lose my rings. I'd pick up a couple, but I can never recover all of them because you just can't. And then I just kept going through the levels. And eventually I would end up dying because I didn't collect enough rings to go into the special levels. And I didn't collect enough continues to actually beat the game. So I never really got far in the game when I was younger. Albeit, once again, didn't really play the original all that much. Playing through it today, I took a much more cautious approach and I found the game to be exquisitely designed. You can run through the levels at a breakneck speed and you will have a heck of a time doing it and it is a blast. But if you want to actually stop and smell the roses, Sonic supports that too and it creates a platforming experience that is on par with the best platforming titles from Nintendo and other competitors. I can't speak highly enough about Sonic the Hedgehog. It was one of those fun experiences that I went in expecting a good game. I just didn't expect it to be an absolute masterpiece. And it was. There are, though, six other games on our list that edge out even Sonic the Hedgehog. So we're going to go on to the number six entry on our top ten list. I'm going to be totally honest when I say that Streets of Rage 2 surprised the heck out of me. I had always heard that Streets of Rage 2 was one of the best games of all time. Not just one of the best beat-em-up games, one of the best games of all time. And I sort of sat back and I was kind of smug about it. And I thought, oh, sure, Streets of Rage 2, I'm sure it's great. Yeah, it's a Sega exclusive. That's fine, whatever. I've got my final fight over here. I don't need to worry about any Streets of Rage 2. Well, when I finally sat down to play it, because I had never played Streets of Rage 2 before I played it for this podcast. When I sat down to play it, I was met with an experience that I just could not believe streets of rage 2 is in fact one of the best games ever made bar none doesn't matter what genre and there's a few reasons why that is the primary reason though is because it doesn't feel like a simple traditional beat-em-up when you play a beat-em-up like final fight you have a variety of moves but you don't have a lot of different combos it kind of is a very simple affair. And most of the time in the arcades, when you would play one of these beat 'em up games, there'd be effectively two buttons that you would use, maybe a punch and a kick or punch-kick-jump kind of thing. Maybe there'd be a grapple, but a lot of times you wouldn't need more than two or three buttons to actually play the game. Streets of Rage 2 is no different. You only need two or three buttons. But the fact that the development team added in a combo system that was very similar to what you would see in more traditional one-on-one fighting games like Street Fighter 2, meant that the game had a combat system that is so much deeper than many of its fighting game or beat-em-up contemporaries. It was just astronomically deeper than other games of its type. The fact that you also had multiple characters to choose from, all of whom had their own skill sets and all of whom had their own special moves, just made the game so much more replayable. There were multiple difficulty levels, even though I never tried the the hardest difficulty because I don't really need to put myself through that pain. But just playing through it on the normal difficulty, you have a different gameplay experience depending on what character you pick. And i know one someone might say well yeah you'd get that with final fight 2 but i'm going to tell you streets of rage 2 is much more dynamic much more different and diverse between the different characters you have the ability to select from and the fighting system in the game is what makes it beyond that though the music i have no clue how a 16-bit system could generate such amazing music this is a soundtrack That you should buy on vinyl or some form of media just so that you have it and can listen to it wherever you go or stream it as we do nowadays since physical media is not quite as popular amongst many people. But the fact is the music for Streets of Rage 2 transcends the game. It is as good as anybody has told you it is. And I had people that told that told me about Streets of Rage 2, and they said, listen, this is really one of the best games. And I told you, I was very smug about it. I didn't believe it was possible. After playing it, I am completely in that camp. And I've actually talked to other people that have not played Streets of Rage 2. And I said, listen, this is one of the best games of all time. You have to play it. And they kind of came back with a, really? Are you sure? Like, really one of the best games of all time? Yes, take my word for it. If you haven't played it, you must play it. It is that darn good. We're going to start moving into the top five now. We're getting down to the to the higher performing members of the Pantheon. I'm excited to see what we have next. So our number five entry coming right up. When nintendo released donkey kong country the entire world was turned upside down for me i never expected a game to exist that had this level of graphical fidelity this level of detail on a 16 bit super nintendo system remember this was a system that just a couple years earlier the the height of graphics was super mario world and i mean super mario world looks great but when you start looking at the vast advances in technology that happened in the early 90s to the early to mid 90s, and you look at the movies where Silicon Graphics workstations were driving so many special effects, I never thought that I would see that in a home console. And Donkey Kong Country gave us that. Now, the fact is that there were a lot of different art and programming tricks in the background to make it seem like the super nintendo was actually generating a bunch of three-dimensional visuals or a higher quality level of graphics in reality everything was still sprite based it was just pre-rendered which was quite frankly an ingenious move by the development team to make it feel like it was that much more detailed of a game than what it actually was able or that the super nintendo was actually capable of delivering But the fact is, it didn't matter. Donkey Kong Country was so good. It was so much more advanced than many of its peers that the fact that it was done through a bunch of trickery doesn't really matter. It was just good. And when I sat down to play it again today, because this is one of those games that I did play a lot of when I was a kid. Once again, I never beat this game. And you know what? That's kind of a common theme. I had a ton of games when I was younger, But I didn't have the mentality that said, you know what, I have to, when I buy this game, I have to go out and beat it. When I played games when I was younger, I primarily looked at them as, well, let me have some fun with it. If I beat it, awesome. If I don't, whatever. As long as I'm having fun, I don't really care. Nowadays, I am much more of a completionist kind of mentality. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to have to 100% every single game or have OCD around that. But what I am saying is that most of the games I play today... I kind of want to see the ending for it. And certainly as it relates to this podcast, any game I play, I want to make sure that I can beat and then I can have the full experience because that's what I really want to talk with all of you about, which is what is that overall experience. And Donkey Kong Country is one of those games that from beginning to end oozes quality. I loved the level design in Donkey Kong Country and what they did, what the development team did to make this so unique. Is they would have levels that would build on one another. Meaning, you might have a, f- a couple of stages up front where they're really, really simple. And then a few stages later, you might have a very similar themed stage, but they add some additional mechanics. Or even within a single stage itself, it might start out simple, like the first minecart level. It starts out super simple, just trying to teach you how to navigate on the minecart. Then it adds some additional jumps. And then it adds some ramps to jump off of. And then it adds some differing levels that you have to try to navigate between. And it just builds on itself so that by the time you get to the end of the level, you're facing a sequence that has so many different mechanics at play that you didn't even realize you were basically getting the tutorial for that sequence from going through the prior parts of the level. And I thought that was just absolutely genius level design by the development team. So beyond the graphics, the level design and the way that they designed the overall experience just felt really good. I will say there was a little bit of frustration when you get to, I think it was the ice world area, and I can't recall the exact name of that world, but there was a sequence of around six levels uh, directly in front of each other, so in sequence. And you did not have a save point throughout those six levels. You had to get past all six levels to get to the next save point. And let me tell you, that sequence was kind of brutal. And I definitely replayed it several times trying to get past that sequence. Once again, once you get good at it or once you get proficient enough at the game, you can absolutely get through those levels without too much difficulty. But when you're tackling it for the first time, it's definitely a challenge. It's a good challenge though. It's not one of those ultra frustrating, unfair kinds of challenges. This is one of those challenges that just makes you have fun the whole way. You're kind of smiling the whole way, even though you're, dying and falling off of platforms and getting eaten by other enemies and things like that. That sounds bad, but in reality, it's just a really fun game. I enjoyed it immensely, and it still feels and looks really good today. I have read some reviews recently, some retrospective kind of reviews where people have said, oh, well, Donkey Kong Country, it looked good at the time, but now it just looks totally plastic. It doesn't look real. It doesn't look it just doesn't look good. It's a stylistic thing that really was a function of its time. And it it just doesn't hold up today to that. I say, no, I don't think so. I think you're wrong. I, well, I mean, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but I. I believe that Donkey Kong Country still looks really good today. Does it look the same as any sort of modern, three-dimensional, ultra-rendered kind of experience? No, of course not. It was designed for a 16-bit system back 30 years ago. So no, it doesn't look as good as a modern-day title from that perspective. But for what it was, and if you take it and you compare it to any of the other titles on the market, This is what allowed the Super Nintendo to remain relevant on the market, even while other more powerful consoles were coming out. They may not have had their 64-bit killer system come out right when they expected it to, and that was delayed. Donkey Kong Country provided the stopgap that showed that Nintendo's little system, the Super Nintendo, still had a lot more life in it and could actually compete with all of those newer consoles. DocuCon Country was an absolutely pivotal moment in gaming, and it is one of those releases that will be remembered forever. It was a significant release in video game history, and one of those games that when I went back to play it for this podcast, I just had an absolutely fun time doing so. We're now going to move on to our fourth entry, so buckle up. Let's see what made it into the top four Have you ever played a game and thought, oh my god, I feel like I'm in a movie? Well, if you played Metal Gear Solid, you probably have had that exact experience because it is one of the most cinematic games released of its time. Metal Gear Solid. Took the world by storm when it was released around 1998 it was something that had never really been seen before in video games there were certainly games that tried to deliver a quality narrative where they tried to make things feel a little bit more cinematic But Metal Gear Solid was Hideo Kojima's way of saying, look, I may not be making full length feature films, but I can take all of those techniques that I want to use and that I've learned over a period of time and that I've studied because Kojima had such an interest and still has an interest in developing film. He took all of that technique and he put that into this game to create a cinematic stealth action game that bar none was incredibly different than anything that had come before it and almost single-handedly revolutionized and created the stealth action genre. Metal Gear Solid is one of those games where I did play and beat it when I was younger. And I remember playing it and just feeling so overwhelmed by the, the just raw scale and epicness of the overall experience. And once again, it felt like you were playing a movie. And it was even the graphics were light years beyond anything that you had seen on the PlayStation up to that point. It's not that the PlayStation had bad looking games. They had some great looking games. Metal Gear Solid just blew all of them away both from a cinematography perspective as well as just what the game overall looked like and the controls. The controls were amazing for the time. It felt so good navigating the Shadow Moses complex and trying to figure out how to get by the various enemies and stealth by them and sneak into different rooms and avoid combat because if you got into combat, you'd be in a little bit of trouble since it really is one of those games that tells you pretty directly that you should avoid combat and confrontation at all costs unless it is entirely unavoidable so i did play that when i was younger i did beat it this was actually one of those games that my brother and i both equally enjoyed it was just a great experience and i still remember the sequence that sticks out of my head the most from when i was younger there were two two sequences stuck out of my head from and that I've just had in my head for years, for the last twenty plus years. One is the torture sequence where Revolver Ocelot is torturing Snake. And the big deal with that sequence is if you fail. If you fail that torture sequence, then a main character in the game will die and your ending will be impacted. So you have to make sure that you do not fail that sequence. One of the most awesome things with the entire game is how Kojima played around with breaking the fourth wall and also how he played around with different innovative mechanics for the game. So when you are in that torture sequence, just as an example, Revolver Ocelot will tell you Don't use an auto-fire mechanism or I will know. Now, I don't have an auto-fire PlayStation controller to actually test that out with. So when I played the game, I was always just hammering on the button. But it just was awesome to me to think, oh, crap, this is one of those things where if I fail, I really do fail. And by the way, if you decide to not give up, because they they do say, hey, if you don't give up, you're going to die. There are no continues. It felt very much like they were trying to create a real kind of experience here. And most games, they might have text to that effect. The, one of the bad guys might tell you, hey, listen, there are no continues if you fail, so listen, you better pay attention. You better do what you have to do. And a lot of times, that's just flavor text, and then you're able to continue from wherever you were, and there's really no impact. In Metal Gear Solid, if you fail that torture sequence... It really will knock you out of the game. There is no autosave. There is no checkpoint. You have to restart from whenever your last save was, which could potentially be a while ago since you have to manually tell the game when you want to save. So I thought that was both awesome as well as very confident on the part of Kojima to actually go forward with that kind of a mechanic. The second sequence in the game that I remember from when I played it as a kid was was the Psychomantis boss fight, where he can basically read all of your controller inputs unless you switch the controller port to controller port number two, which then prevents him from actually reading your thoughts, so to speak. More specifically, it makes it so that he doesn't read your controller inputs and automatically counter whatever you're trying to do. Once again, an outstanding mechanic that had never really been used before that I thought just made the game entirely innovative. When I went to play Metal Gear Solid again today, when I went to play it for this podcast, it was as impactful as I remembered it. Almost every aspect of the game just felt right. I will admit that I don't know if it was my own lack of skill or degradation of skill the controls felt a little bit more challenging than i remember them being as a kid or maybe i was just a little bit more forgiving when i was younger i guess i was around 17 ish when the game came out so maybe i was just a little bit more forgiving of controls back then or maybe just my skill level has dropped a bit as i've gotten a little bit older But I do say that the controls were a little finicky, especially trying to sneak up behind enemies to choke them out and do a stealthy kill kind of thing, because a lot of times when I was playing the game just recently, I would move, I guess, a little bit too far, would grab the enemy and throw them versus trying to choke them, which then would set off alerts all over the place. And then I'd be in an action sequence, which I didn't really want to do. Regardless of that fact, though, Metal Gear Solid remains an incredibly cinematic game and is a true masterpiece in cinematography and game design. This is the game that proved to literally everyone that Hideo Kojima was a rock star game designer. Sure, he had other games before that. He had the original Metal Gear and Metal Gear 2 on the MSX2 computer systems in Japan. He had Snatcher. He had Police Knots. But this was the game that put Kojima directly on the map. And then everything else that Kojima touched from that point was absolute. Gold and was highly anticipated by literally the entire gaming world. I am definitely interested to see how Kojima continues to evolve his style, especially as we look forward to Death Stranding 2 that's going to be coming out in the near future, as well as his forthcoming film, I believe, based on Death Stranding. So we'll see how that all plays out. But Kojima definitely deserves some some respect around the release of Metal Gear Solid. It was an amazing experience. It remains an amazing experience today. Moving on, we are now up to the top three in our pantheon of classic gaming. So what game made it to the third entry on our list? Well, let's take a look. opening riff to the first stage in doom the first map in doom is probably one of the most iconic songs in video game history i cannot think of a single person who i could probably walk up to anybody on the street just randomly and say hey do you know what the doom episode one map one song is and i can almost guarantee you that a good portion of the population is going to be able to hum that song directly because it is that iconic. And that was just the introductory piece to what was the true originator and father of many of the first-person shooter mechanics that would become pervasive across the entire industry just a short time after its release. Now, sure, there were first-person shooters before Doom, primarily Wolfenstein 3D, which was another id software release that came right before Doom, but there were others across video game history. What Doom did, though, was it created such a combination of speed, high-quality graphics, and visceral gore and visceral action that it was unlike anything that many people had played up to that point. And for me, Doom holds a special place in my heart because it was the very first computer game that I ever bought. So here's the story behind that one. And I can't recall if I relayed this during the Doom episode. I probably did, but bear with me. So I had just gotten a multimedia-capable PC, a Tandy 486SX 25 megahertz with, I believe, 4 megabytes of RAM and some paltry hard drive. I got that machine with a color monitor we had upgraded from what was effectively an old IBM work-based computer with a green monochrome display. Couldn't really run any games on that at all, so I was super excited to get my Tandy 486. I got home and didn't have any games for it. It did come with a copy of San Diego Zoo Presents the Animals, which was a really cool multimedia zoo kind of experience, and I loved just messing around with that and listening to the different animal sounds and playing videos of the animals because I never had that, and I didn't realize that computers could actually do stuff like that. So we have this computer, and one night my father came home with a cardboard sleeve, and I looked at the cardboard sleeve, and it said Doom across the front of it. It was the Doom shareware. And I had no idea what the heck shareware was back then. I didn't really know all that much about computer gaming because I was relatively new to the whole computer gaming scene, having just gotten a gaming capable PC a very short time before. So I looked at this disc, it's three and a half inch floppy. And I thought, well, what the heck is Doom? I turned over the cardboard sleeve, I looked at the back of the box, and looked kind of cool. I had never seen a first person shooter before. I didn't even know what the heck it was. So I popped the three and a half inch disc in the drive. I'd go through the installation. I start up the game. And then I hear that very first episode one map one sound, the music. And I thought, whoa, This is something, this is going to be something special. And then I sat down and I played through the entire shareware episode, probably over the course of a night. I was probably a zombie for school the next day because I was just so enamored with the game. Moving on to playing it just recently, it has held up remarkably well. Whereas some other games like Wolfenstein 3D, There are some aged elements there. It's still a really good experience, but there's definitely a little bit of aging around the edges. With Doom, there's really none of that. Sure, it doesn't have mouse look or some of the other kinds of innovations that would come with first-person shooters released after it, but it doesn't need it. For what it is, which is a very traditional retro-styled first-person shooter, Doom is pretty much perfect. There are definitely a couple of rough edges and there's a little bit of difficulty here and there that might be a little bit excessive, but in almost all instances, the game gives you the tools necessary to be successful. You just have to know how to use those tools, when to use them and how to maneuver around each of the levels to avoid and or defeat the enemies that the game throws at you every single moment in doom is filled with tension and dread, and it just continues to build on each other. And I can't tell you the number of times, even when I played through it recently, where I would turn the corner and I'd see a pinky right in front of me, and I'd think, oh, whoa, and I'd get really a little freaked out because I didn't expect it to be charging me around the corner. There's still that sense of palpable tension that comes with the game, and that is because the game is designed oh so well. It is one of the best designed games ever. It is one of the most, if not the most, influential game in computer history. And even playing it today, it holds up as well as any game that you're going to see out there in the entirety of the video and computer game landscape. Doom is that darn good. It is that darn important. And if you've never played Doom... You have to play it. This is one of those games you absolutely have to play. You have to experience it. It is like it is like one of those things where it's a prerequisite to calling yourself a true computer gamer. Not really. I mean, I'm not going to hold that against you. But you really should play it if you haven't played it at all because it is one of those transcendent experiences that everybody in their gaming life has to have at least once. We're going to move on to the top two. We're getting down there. I wonder if your game in your personal Pantheon is still on the list. Our number two entry in our top 10 rank of the Pantheon of Classic Gaming is coming right now. This one is a total shock to me, and I'm going to guess that some of you listening here may not even recognize where this song came from or what game this song came from. Well, it comes from Toonstruck, a point-and-click adventure game by Virgin Interactive that was released back in the mid-90s, and one that kind of flew a little bit under the radar because... It wasn't released by one of the adventure game behemoths like Sierra Online or LucasArts or even Revolution Software, who had created Beneath the Steel Sky and the Circle of Blood or uh, Broken Sword series. So this was one of those games that kind of flew a little bit under the radar. And I will readily admit, I have known about Toonstruck forever. Because one of the reasons is that it has some full motion video sequences in it. And as you all likely know, if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, I love full motion video games. It doesn't matter how cheesy, how corny, how badly acted. I love them all. Toonstruck is a full motion video game, and I had always heard good things about it. I always thought, well, this will be something that I will eventually play. And it's probably a good game because I love adventure games, too. So adventure game, full motion video game, put them together It's probably going to be a good time, and it sounds like something that'll be right up my alley. So I fully anticipated liking the game. What I didn't anticipate was sitting down to play it just a couple months ago at this point and just experiencing something that was absolutely one of the best adventure games I had played. It surprised me so much. It's kind of like a LucasArts-styled game in that you have uh, a number of different comical elements, but the comedy here is so much more mature than what you would see in the typical LucasArts adventure. And unlike many adventure games, this game is genuinely laugh-out-loud funny in certain spots. I've mentioned this before, but there are a lot of games that people look at and they say, oh, that's funny. It's like, haha, kind of funny. It's, it's not one of those things where it's necessarily going to make you laugh-out-loud. It's more one of those, oh, that's amusing kind of things, at least for me. I know that that a lot of times, even when people say a game is funny and I recognize a game is comedic, it doesn't necessarily hit me the same way as what a funny movie does, where I might be sitting down there and I might literally burst out laughing. Toonstruck is legitimately funny. It's one of those games that it's just so well put together. I loved almost everything. About Toonstruck. One of the things though, that I really enjoyed, because I did love, I, when I was younger, I would watch old cartoons a lot. Even though I didn't grow up in the time when cartoons like Tom and Jerry were being created, so to speak, I still enjoyed watching them. The old Looney Tunes kind of shows or any of those older cartoons, the vintage cartoons, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, whatever, I loved those cartoons. And Toonstruck is effectively one of those, albeit with a lot of additional gameplay elements built on top of it. And one of the things that makes Toonstruck feel like that is the quality of the voice acting, the voice acting, bar none, some of the best voice acting, if not the best voice acting I have heard in a video game. And these are these are stars. They're not necessarily Hollywood A-list stars, but they are people who have voice acted before or who have provided voices for cartoons in the past. So the way the developers went about this was they literally grabbed up a bunch of voice actors that had done cartoon work before. And they said, hey, lend your voices to this game. We're creating basically an interactive cartoon adventure game. And they did that, and the effect was so profound because it created an experience that was unlike anything I had played before in a video game. It just really felt like an interactive cartoon. Couple that with the ingenuity of the puzzles and just the overall design of the game world and the flow, it just created an experience that literally and legitimately is one of the best adventure games of all time. And even in our list of the Pantheon, which spans all sorts of genres. Toonstruck is number two. That's got to tell you something. I know that adventure games are not everybody's cup of tea. I know that not everybody appreciates the more narrative, less fast-paced gameplay structure that many point-and-click adventure games have, and I can respect that. What I'm telling you, though, is that if you want to experience a really good game And you want to be whisked away into a fantasy world where you are immersed and it feels just right. Play ToonStruck, Even if you're not a point and click adventure kind of person, give it a shot. At least admire some of the voice acting or maybe watch a playthrough. If you really don't like playing point and click adventure games or you don't like the puzzles or any of those kinds of things, watch a playthrough and listen to the voice acting. Watch the various videos, see how the interactions happen and, and take a look at the script as you're, as you're watching it, because it is genuinely funny. And it is one of my favorite games that I played over the last year. And in my own personal opinion, it is one of the best adventure games of all time, but there is one other game that we have looked at over the past year that outranks, even Toonstruck, it outranks every other game in the Pantheon. Our number one entry in our Pantheon of Classic Gaming is... I don't know if anybody is going to consider this a surprise because Chrono Trigger is one of those games that is almost universally loved and praised as one of the best 16-bit role-playing games of all time. And even beyond that, just one of the best role-playing games of all time. And it is not hard to see why, because every single aspect of the game, every bit of the experience is a significant level of quality above most of its peers. Chrono Trigger is one of those games where when you play it, you are whisked off to another world and you have just this feeling of awe as you play the entire game. It's a time-traveling adventure where the actions that you do in one time period will impact other timeframes as well. And you can really see your impact on the rest of the game world. What really brings it together, though, is a few different things. One, it is meticulously written and designed. The story in Chrono Trigger feels a little quaint in comparison to some other Japanese role-playing games, like some of the Final Fantasy games, where the scope is just so ridiculously epic and you have 20-plus characters that you have to manage and different parties that are going simultaneously, which, by the way, I love that style of game too. But Chrono Trigger is a much more personal affair. It's a much more kind of focused affair because you only have a limited number of characters. You still have a good number. I think you have six or seven ish characters that you can choose between over the course of the game, but it is one of those experiences that is much more focused and it tells a much more personal story than what some of the other games do. But beyond that, everything in the game comes together to create what is probably one of the most memorable experiences in gaming. The graphics, the music, the music is so astoundingly good. I own the Chrono Trigger soundtrack on CD, by the way, which I don't own a ton of video game soundtracks on physical media. Chrono Trigger is one of them that I do because it is just that good. I would listen to this. When I was younger, I did play Chrono Trigger. So my brother and I played Chrono Trigger Together And we beat it several times because there are multiple endings in the game, which was another innovation that many JRPGs of the time did not have. And even many RPGs of today don't have. Chrono Trigger had multiple endings and we played through it multiple times. And we always got into a little bit of a debate between which game is better, Chrono Trigger or Final Fantasy III, otherwise known as Final Fantasy VI outside of the United States. But we always got into a little bit of a debate. And at the time, when I was a kid, I always thought that Final Fantasy VI was the best RPG ever made. It was, Chrono Trigger was good, but it wasn't as good. I always thought Chrono Trigger was kind of a few steps below Final Fantasy VI. Playing it today, playing it over the past year, back when I played it, I guess around December time frame for this podcast of last year, I came to the realization that well, I don't know how it ranks compared to Final Fantasy VI in my perspective today, since I haven't played Final Fantasy VI yet, or I haven't replayed Final Fantasy VI yet to compare it to Chrono Trigger. What I can tell you is that Chrono Trigger, just by itself, as a standalone experience, is a masterpiece of masterpieces. It is one of those games that transcends its genre to become just one of the best games of all time. The story, the graphics, the music, the overall world design, the quest design, the combat system, the way that the combat system is much more real-time versus the more traditional turn-based of many JRPGs. Just the way everything comes together, it creates the total package, a total package in gaming that is really difficult to match. And by far, Chrono Trigger is the best game that I have played over the last year for this podcast. I still sit back and occasionally think about Chrono Trigger and I think to myself, "Oh man, I got to go back and play that again. I got to got to get some more of the endings. I got to experience more of the game. It is that darn good and it deserves its spot as the number one entry in our pantheon of classic gaming. That was our episode focusing on our one-year anniversary and our current top 10 ranking of the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. And I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community with this podcast. We have a ton of great fun out there. I definitely encourage you all to join. We also have a Patreon. That is patreon.com slash today. So if you want even additional content, that's the place to get it. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the secret of Monkey Island. So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services. And if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave me a review on your podcast service of choice. This is not about bolstering star counts. It is not about trying to harvest a ton of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is gathering the feedback necessary to continue to make this the best possible podcast that I can. We gain new listeners every single day. I am grateful for all of you. I have had an amazing year of creating this podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure and a blast to do this and i want to continue to do this and the only way that i can be sure that we're delivering the content that everybody wants to listen to is by getting that feedback so please if you do feel so inclined i would love it if you could provide a review or if you just want to reach out let me know how i'm doing shoot me a note send me an email post on twitter or send me a dm whatever you want to do i am just interested in making sure that i can continue to deliver the content that everybody wants to hear We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on the secret of Monkey Island. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.